This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, Pete, I fueled up the playoff promotion party bus last week only for the bloody thing to fail its MOT at the weekend. It was the same shape as against Fulham. It was the same starting eleven, but a very, very different performance. What on earth happened? I think it's probably likely down to the opposition, which seems strange to say when we're talking about playing Fulham off the park one week and then not playing well against Bristol City or towards the bottom end of the table. But they matched us up in the shape. It was a back three versus a back three, which tends to make it more difficult. We kind of saw ourselves struggle earlier in Bruce's reign against Middlesbrough and Swansea when we were playing the back four against the back three, like Fulham did against us. You kind of get those overloads in wide areas. And I think we conceded against both Middlesbrough and Swansea. So Bristol City matching us up with that back three, I think helped them. And the fact that they played longer, um, 23% of their passes were long compared to 8.8% of Fulham's. So it stopped us from getting at them as much and winning the ball high up the pitch. 11% of our of our recoveries were in the final third against Bristol City, which is much lower than against Fulham, which was 23%. So we were against Fulham, we were able to win the ball higher. And I think there was less responsibility for Albion to kind of control the game against Fulham, which I think benefited us. We kind of were able to nick the ball off Fulham when they were in possession and then have plenty of space to attack, which wasn't really the case against Bristol City. You mentioned there the long balls and Bruce, I think I think I'm quoting him correctly here, described the defending for the two goals as quote schoolboy. Now we've got a lot of big lads in our team. We've got three big centre halves. We've got Darnell Furlong, who might not be the biggest player, but his spring is is unbelievable. And yet you look at the second goal, we concede from a free kick on that's practically on the halfway line. I mean, it's just criminal, isn't it? Yeah, but it's the kind of thing that we've been seeing less of in recent weeks. We kind of seem to have had that defensive sturdiness back and, and been improving in that in that sense. But yeah, like you say, against Bristol City, it kind of kind of all fell away again. Bruce challenged the mentality after the game. It's something we've talked about on this pod quite a lot. He talked about trying to change a mentality within the squad. It was almost he was almost basically challenging the culture of the football club and the players within it. It was the first time I'd really heard him come out and dig the players out in such a fashion. And I found it very telling after the game. It's something that we've hinted at without actually knowing any of the players personally, but the evidence on the pitch seems to be that when you actually look at all the data, Pete, it, it, it's actually been quite a challenging season from a data point of view because the 
the data that you see from the Albion over the course of the season doesn't reflect the results on it or our position in, in the table, largely speaking. So there has to be something else go, going on because once you've got a sample size that we have, which is 38 games, and you find yourself 12th in the table as we are, generally speaking, you are where you should be. Or I mean, you've played played pretty much every, everyone, and I think we've we've largely got equal parts teams at the top and teams at the bottom still to play. So I don't think our, our position is not representative of where we should be. But the data doesn't show that. So there has to be something else. And we've been hinting towards the mentality. And Bruce came out and outrightly called it out after the game. And this seemed a very perfect example of that, didn't it? That the players, it was almost like after the Lord Mayor's show, where you've got this performance against Fulham and the elation that went along with it, the crowd completely back aligned with the players. It was almost like perfect harmony. And yet they just didn't have the mental strength to go again. And I have to say, we've we've been a little critical of Steve Bruce at times, this season or well in the last few weeks only been our, only been our manager for a couple of months but um we've we've been we've been a little critical of Steve Bruce and some of the decisions that he's made and some of the things that he said in the press but I, I personally really liked that he came out after the game and we didn't hear a word about oh we, yeah well Tuesday night took an awful lot out of us and it was the same 11 players so you know tired legs blah 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 excuse excuse you know a bit like bit like Frank Lampard is cutting a lot of flack currently from uh, from the Everton fans for coming out with those kind of excuses after the defeat to Crystal Palace you didn't hear any of that from Steve Bruce he outrightly said mentally speaking you have to be prepared for a game like this after you've had a great performance and there's almost no point putting in that performance against Fulham if you are not ready to follow it up in a far less glamorous fixture away at Bristol City. And that's kind of why the Championship is such a difficult league. You've got basically games non-stop and don't make the most of your wins and your good performances and you're going to struggle because you kind of need to get into that routine of winning and playing with lots of confidence. And I think Fulham was a good chance for us to kind of, well, Huddersfield before that as well after rescuing the draw late on and the, the atmosphere that created at the Hawthorns and then the the win up against Fulham, it felt like a good time to finally get a bit of a run back together and, and pick up a, a fair few points going into the, the final games of the season that would ultimately give us a shot at the playoffs that I think has probably passed us by now. The bad thing is, though, that really that positivity should still should still be there to a certain degree because, I mean, I described the performance as, quote, garbage on uh, on Twitter and I stand by that assessment. I thought it was... It was dreadful, and I thought it was daylight robbery that we came away with a point, to be honest with you. But ultimately, we did come away with a point. It is eight points from a possible 12 in the last four games. Okay, given the position we were in, that's probably not enough. But it's it's not bad. I mean, two points a game is promotion form, ultimately speaking, in any given season. Granted, we've got ground to make up, so we need more than two points a game. But the players should be, really, after two draws, both of which were dramatic comebacks in amazing circumstances, and then a very routine win against Hull, and then a superb win against Fulham, you almost feel in that package of four games, the players should be feeling pretty good about themselves. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, but I'm I'm sitting here, I don't feel particularly good about these players after that block of four games 
I don't think they will feel terribly good about themselves. Certainly the manager's comments would suggest that he doesn't feel great about them and doesn't feel like he's got an awful lot of faith in them. There's something about this group of players where even after they pull out a result that you just don't fancy them to go and back it up. Do you, do you feel the same way about this group? No, I see where you're coming from. That I think especially after Ishmael's last couple of games and Bruce's start, they kind of I kind of lost faith and didn't see where we were going to pick up a, any sort of result from. But I mean, I think it's starting to come back, especially after that Fulham game. But then, yeah, like I said, the Bristol game, Bristol City game kind of just knocked that back. And I don't think we're back to square one, but I think it would have put a dent in the confidence of the players and maybe the fans as well. But I think there's, I think you've got to consider that I think in the past four games, we've had three penalties. And I mean, you can't rely on penalties to be your goal scoring moments because they don't come around very regularly. I think we've prior to the past four games, we've had one this whole season. So that's a bit of a worry for me. Yeah, uh, especially, especially as at least one of them probably wasn't a penalty. Although having said that, we we, we were denied an absolute stonewaller against Fulham. So I suppose you, you, you could say we warranted three penalties in the last in the last few games, even if they weren't necessarily the three penalties that we got. But just continuing along the theme of mentality, Pete, and it's for me as well, it's having the mindset of doing the right things in games. And on Saturday, one of the massive turning points for me, and this is not me being smart at the time I didn't think this at the moment at at that moment when it happened but having looked back having looked at the data after the game I think one of the biggest moments in that game came in 36th minute when Jake Livermore got himself booked and you look at the data from that point on and Livermore contributes nothing nothing to that game after his yellow card really up until the point where he gets the assist in the last minute which is a lovely little touch if indeed he means it, he is poss- quite possibly offside, as Nigel Pearson has been at pains to to point out. But up until that point, for the for the the, the fairly large chunk of time in between that ninety second minute equaliser and his thirty six minute yellow card, he doesn't really contribute anything to the game. And the knock on effect further to that is that Alex Mowat then makes the most tackles of any Albion player in the team. He ends up basically doing Livermore's job. Livermore's not really doing anything of any of any real substance in in the game. We've effectively took one of our midfielders out of the game and two of our most productive players in the last few games where our form has turned a little bit. And people aren't going to want to hear this because I know there's not a great deal of love out there for Alex Mowat. But genuinely, you look at the numbers over the last few games, and Mowat has been excellent. Livermore has been recognised by most people as having been excellent. And again, the numbers back that up. But all it takes, apparently, to bring that particular house of cards tumbling down is an early yellow card for Jake Livermore. And he has to be more aware of that. I mean, you spoke, I think it was a couple of weeks back, Pete, about saving your yellow cards for later later on in a game because you are potentially going to need to make that foul later on in the game. And I think Jake is probably quite mindful of the fact that he cannot, cannot get sent off again this season. There was so much anger on this podcast, not least after his red card against Sheffield United, and rightly so as well. It was an utterly, utterly ridiculous challenge. 
So he knows he can't get sent off again. But equally, he has to be useful to the team if he gets a yellow card. So either A, has to not get booked. And I thought that was a silly booking for the yellow card against Bristol City. Or he has to be able to manage the situation as and when he does and not end up ruining the game that Alex Mowat has because he's picked up a yellow card. Yeah, especially important when you're playing as the defensive midfield of the three and when Bristol City has spent most of the game in the league because he's going to be the one that's in charge of stopping transitions and that might involve bringing someone down, which he obviously can't do if he's on yellow. So maybe that's why Mowat had to get involved and make more tackles than he, he usually does and... I think we focused down the right a bit more than usual, which might be because no, it was stopping back to support Livermore. It is for unbeaten. It is a couple of good comebacks with two wins either side. Do you see any light for this team this season, Pete? I mean, we've got to throw into the mix as well the fact that DK has had another little setback. We don't know how serious it, it is, but we do. what we do know is that he's not being risked for the under-23s, which means he's probably not going to get much, if any, football. I don't know whether the 23s have got another game before we play Birmingham, but it's unlikely that he's going to get any football before Birmingham, which means he's probably not going to be involved in, in that game. So we can probably count out DK having any real impact on on the starting 11 of West Bromwich Albion or indeed the substitutes bench before the last half a dozen of games of this season. So with what we have available to us, Carroll added back into the mix because I think his injury was fairly minor and we would expect him to be back available to us against against Birmingham. Do you see any hope for this season or are we we really in planning mode now for next season? In realistic, I don't see how we make the playoffs. I mentioned on the last pod that we, in some ways, the fixtures kind of suited us because we're mostly playing like the bottom eight, I think it was, or the top, the top six contenders. So potentially easy games or six pointers, both of which are useful when you you're chasing that playoff spot. But I don't think we will do it. I think Fulham, the Fulham game was the only performance that was a real, real top team performance. I think we're decent against Huddersfield, but not a. We basically need to play like title contenders for the rest of the season to to get into that playoff spot I think and I think Fulham was the only game that we showed that when you look at the if you look at the non-penalty expected goals as a kind of rolling average over the last few games we're still playing as a a mid-table side according to that because that's without the penalties of course which have helped us pick up the the win against Hull the draw against Huddersfield and then the draw against Bristol City as well so realistically I don't I don't think we make it but I think the squad's it's still got quality in it so with a good transfer window in the summer and a good bit of planning from the board, I think we can definitely be up there next season. Looking forward and looking at this squad, what we've seen over the last few games, although it's obviously not anywhere near enough for this season, it does give you a little bit of positivity, doesn't it, around this squad and around this group of players, that there is maybe a little bit more here than than we thought there was. I do want to touch on Daryl DK and ask you the question, how much of a difference you think he makes to this side? We can't look into a crystal ball and predict the future of one, what shape we play next season, two, even who the manager is, because we don't know whether it's going to be Steve Bruce. We don't know whether it's going to be somebody else. I think for the purposes of this conversation, we have to work on the hypothetical assumption that we will continue to play a similar sort of shape going into next season. And were that 
to be the case. There doesn't seem loads wrong here. I think we've got a fairly decent midfield trio of Moat, Livermore and Gardner-Hickman, but the problem being that we don't want all three of them in the side at the same time because we need a proper 10 in there replacing one of them, potentially even Sawyer's replace, replacing another one. You could potentially say Moat and Taylor Gardner-Hickman come out for, for, for Sawyer's and a, and a proper 10 again tgh coming out won't be won't be popular with with a lot of people but he isn't i don't think he's at a point yet in his development where we can where we should be relying on him for 46 games i think he's a player that's going to play he's going to play a lot more next season but i don't think we we can look at him to play every single game when when he's fit because he's going to have dips he was he was poor against bristol city there's no two ways about that and he's going to have games like that because he is he is a young footballer, and then you look at the rest and you think, well, Grant and Robinson have looked good at points in the last few games. They are infuriatingly inconsistent. Both of them drive you absolutely up the wall. But there is quality there at this level. Grady has shown what an impact he can make off the bench, as has Carroll. In terms of the centre halves, I think they 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 were a joke on uh, on the weekend, conceding some of the goals they conceded. But largely speaking, I think Ajayi, Bartley and Clark, if indeed, of course, Clark is here next season, which there is no guarantees of, have looked excellent in the last few games. Yes, we need to either replace the goalkeeper or give the number one shirt to one of Palmer, Button or Griffiths. And then the fullbacks have looked okay. There's no backups there and, uh, and, and you are entirely reliant on those two playing most games or indeed you could switch Taylor Gardner Hickman to one of those two fullback positions. But I think, I think what the last few games has showed us, Pete, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, there's probably a little bit more in this squad than perhaps we thought there was. There's zero depth. There's absolutely zero depth. There's no two ways about that. But I mean, my two questions to you is, is there, is there a little bit more here than we, than we initially thought? And two, how big an impact does Daryl DK have if he comes back next season and plays 40-odd games over the course of the season? I think with the um, quality of the squad, we'll always feel better as a fan after we've had some decent performances. I think before we were kind of judging after a really poor patch where we just, I mean, we were looking terrible, basically. So that doesn't didn't help, but I think there's undoubtedly quality in the squad, but it's kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier as well, where the, the mentality with some of the players is right. If it's not, then can we sort that? Can we move those players on and kind of improve that? What, what, I, would, what I would say, Pete, just on that one, is that having worked around a football club and been around fo- footballers, I you know obviously have not been party to a dressing room. I've not been in a dressing room because I'm not a footballer and I don't become party to those kind of environments. But, you know, around the players and you get to know them a little bit. I don't think necessarily if you've got a squad that lacks leadership or has a weak mentality within it, that you need to move all the mentally weak players on as such, which is what some people are calling for. Some people are calling for a, for a massive clear out of this squad. I don't see that turning over that kind of number of players would do us a great deal of good. I just honestly think that you input a couple of really big personalities, really strong leaders, real absolute winners into this squad. 
And you probably see a bit of a transformation in, in quite a number of the players, a bit like, for example, how in the Great Escape season, we looked a completely different side after Kevin Campbell came in because he, he had a huge impact on a lot of those players. Well, there you are. You know much better than me in that respect. You've got much more experience than me, so I'll go with that. So, I mean, like I said, we've still got quality in the squad, so maybe we just need one or two real leaders that are going to lift the rest of the squad up, like you mentioned. And in terms of DK, I still think he'll be a massive asset to have. We've seen that he's obviously a very physical striker, explosive, so he'll make those runs in behind. I think what he'll offer more than what Grant and Mosso Grant, because I think he's closer to a Grant sort of player than he is a Robinson player, but he'll offer a focal point for crosses. He'll win more headers in the box than Grant does, and he's kind of got more layers to his game than, than Andy Carroll, who's generally just a bit of a target man, but is very good at what he does there. I think DK will make those runs in behind, and he will, will be able to cross to him. He scored at a fantastic rate for the, his career so far. I don't think that'll stay as good a rate as it, it is, because it is, I mean, he's finished at an astonishing rate, but I still think he'll be a good goal scorer for us. He gets into good positions to score goals and he shoots. Whenever he shoots, it seems to be with a really powerful shot. It's less so about his placement, which, I mean, it could be why he's finished so well in his career so far that he's just beating keepers with pure power. So I think that'd be nice to see if he gets a chance, then you're likely to see him smash it towards the goal, which, I mean, I think that'll uplift the fans a bit, just that having that kind of energy in the game to make the runs in behind and win the headers and when he gets a chance he's going to put his foot through it. I think fans tend to like players that have that physical presence. If indeed he does come into the side and play regularly, does it create a bit of a problem for Carlin Grant and what we, what we do with him? Because if we keep this shape, can Grant play as, as, as the withdrawn one that Robinson has been in, in the last few games? Or is it a matter of either we go back to a three or... Grant is very much second fiddle to DK because in the latter scenario, I I can't see Carlin Grant being happy with that. I I think if Carlin Grant is getting told that, you know, you will basically play as and when DK is out, I think he'll want to move to another club. Yeah, I think Robinson, it looks like the better fit to play with him. I think he'll do more. Robinson will drop deeper to get on the ball a bit more and likes to play those through balls that DK will hopefully be making the runs for. So I think they're, from what we've seen of all the players so far this season, they're the more natural fit. So if we stay in this shape, then yeah, that's probably what I'd like to see. And Grant might not be might not be happy playing second fiddle there. But I think well, we, there's going to be some decisions to make because we've got a lot of players in those forward, in those attacking positions. And at the minute, we're only playing two of them. I mean, Dean Garner and Carroll, if he stays on, if he his contract gets extended, we've We've got a lot of players in those positions to only be played to them. I mean, almost Phillips, a forgotten yeah. man because he's yeah, blooming injured. Him. But yeah, he's still a good player at this level. So we've got Phillips, Dean Garner, Grant, Robinson, DK, Carroll. I mean, there's a lot of options. So I think Does Phillips kind of fit that. into this shape anywhere? I'd probably say in either in wing-back wing or where Gardner-Hickman's playing, where he's kind of like a wide central midfielder. So he'll be out there to be able to put crosses in and support the wing back with overlaps, underlaps and kind of play as a, almost like a narrow winger. Just before we move on from Daryl DK, just anybody who follows me on Twitter will have seen me tweet this earlier. One thing that really 
did get my goat a little bit. Uh, as I, I was driving home on Saturday listening to, to Radio WM and they reported the news after Steve Bruce's press conference that DK had had a setback. And a, a, there was a worrying amount of Albion fans who came on the radio saying, we've bought another croc, we've bought another croc, it's, it's just another injured player. I, I really want to challenge that because, first of all, this is a young player. He has no history of injuries prior to now to suggest that he will suffer in any sort of a long-term fashion. We brought the guy in after a season in the MLS. So let's, let's, let's remember that he played a season before he came to West Bromwich Albion. Now, normally a player would get somewhere around four to six weeks off to recover their body before being asked to then go through the rigors of preseason and get themselves ready. He didn't have, he certainly didn't have anything like the usual length of time break that players have. He then had a very short period. He was, he was in, he was in the squad before any of us expected him to be. He, he, had, he had a couple of weeks of training before, before playing for us. Now he, normally players would have from around about the start of July, the first week of July through to the second week of August to get themselves ready for that first competitive football match of the season that's about six weeks he didn't have anywhere near that and then as you pointed out before we when we were chatting off air beforehand Pete also his injury came after a prolonged period due to a head injury to an opposition player so he had been stood dormant straight after half time as well so he's just come out for the second half he's played a couple of minutes and then a player's gone down with with a head injury and it was a good four or five minutes wasn't it so is it any surprise that he's got injured? None of that suggests that this is an injury-prone footballer. And then the fact that he has suffered a setback when we are trying to, again, without any sort of full-on rehabilitation of a, of a pre-season, get him back from an injury like this that can reoccur and get him back as quickly as we possibly can. We'd always set this target of we, he will be back before the international break. We dangled this carrot in front of everybody of DK will be back after the March international break, which I personally think was possibly not the best thing to do. I, I, I think it should have been a bit of he will be back when he's back and give him the opportunity to get fully fit so that he doesn't reoccur. And he was obviously getting pushed towards this 23s game, which now isn't going to happen. All of this just suggests to me, it's a player that has, A, initially been rushed into playing in the first instance when he has not had the kind of preparation that you would like him to have for a championship season. And I know he had similar... He had sim- a similar turnaround when he went to Barnsley last year, but he picked up an injury after somebody's been down for five minutes straight after half time with a head injury. So it's not a massive surprise he's got, not got injured. It's not a massive surprise that he has ha- suffered a little bit of a setback, given that we're trying to trying to rush him back. He played 41 games last season across his games in the MLS and for Barnsley. There is no suggestion this is an injury-prone player. And please, 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 let's not start tarring him with that brush of, we've bought a croc. He is he is a crocked player. He is going to be injured. You want to say stuff like that about somebody like Matt Phillips, who seems to spend more time on the treatment table than on the football pitch, then absolutely be my guest, because there is legitimate evidence to say that about somebody like him. There was evidence to say it about Kieran Gibbs. 
because he was injured an awful lot. He never seemed to get through a full season without an injury. Daryl DK has had one injury. And as he has tried to push his body to get back from that injury, he suffered a minor setback. It happens. I just, I just think that people have to be careful about the things they say, Pete. And because this sort of thing reputationally sticks with a player, doesn't it? Yeah. I basically agree with, with what you said there. He came in after a full season with, with Orlando and then had a, a short break comparable to what you'd usually get at the end of a season and a short pre-season. And I imagine Ishmael felt a bit under pressure at that point and wanted to get his the signing that he wanted all along into the squad and, and playing games and scoring goals for him. So I imagine it was a bit of a calculated risk. I'm sure, sure he spoke to the sports scientists and they told him the risks and, you know, it kind of, DK got a bit unlucky there. But to say it's going to happen for the whole his whole career at Albion, there's just nothing to, to base that claim on really prior to his injury for Albion. There's very few times he's been out injured. I think there's once maybe at Orlando he missed a couple of games. I think it was a shoulder injury as well, so it's not like it's a recurring hamstring injury. Um so yeah, I just Yeah, it's not any... like when Michael Owen's hamstring started going. No, I don't I just don't think there's any basis for the claims that he's an injury prone player and it's gonna keep happening. Um so I think it's a bit unfair on him really. Just a couple of points that we want to talk about, Pete, before we before we finish one thing that was quite noticeable at the weekend was our lack of productivity from set pieces. Moat cooked a couple of free kicks over over the back post and straight out of play from half-decent positions. Our corners did not seem to bear anything close to any fruit. And probably it was thrown into fairly stark con- contrast as well due to the fact that Bristol City did look dangerous when they got set pieces, that they did put balls into the box. Obviously, the the, the second goal has come from a long free kick from the halfway line. But even, even the first one, has it's initially the throw-in has come from a, a free kick into the box. But just talking more broadly about this, it's been an element of frustration over the course of the season that we have not especially with the height that we've had in the side throughout much of the season, playing three centre-halves for the majority of the season, Darnell Furlong being an excellent jumper as well. It's been a bit of a frustration with the fans that we haven't looked more productive from free kicks and corner kicks. I'm not going to put the throw-ins into there because I think particularly early on in the season, we looked a real threat from those. And I still think they look like one of our most dangerous avenues to goal, but the corners and the free kicks have not have have borne some of the frustration from the fans. From looking at the data, do you feel that's justified? I don't think focusing on free on corners. Sorry, um, I don't think it is justified. Generally, we've created the greatest amount of expected goals from set pieces in the league, created nineteen point four. But I mean, we've only scored eight, which is where the the problem lies. I think. And when you look at the conversion rate of the corners, we've scored from 2.25% of our corners. According to StatsBomb, who's a, which is a, um, a massive data company that provides services for lots of top um, professional football clubs, they said in 2019 the, the average conversion rate for a corner was between 2 and 2.5%, which is exactly where Albion have been. You mentioned it that maybe we should be looking to be higher with our height that we've got from like the defenders that are coming up for corners, Clark, Bartley, Ajayi. And the likes of that, um, but I mean, we've been we've been average with our conversion rate. According to the expected goals, we've created lots of chances. We've just not really been been putting them away. The I mean, 
something that stands out to me was that um, Bartley has been our top target for corners. Bartley's won 17 of the first crosses from the corners, and that's the highest of any Albion player. And the next highest, which is what really stands out, is Callum Robinson, which is only, with only five. So I think we're almost been a bit one-dimensional with them. We kind of, I think any teams that are analysing us before playing us will be able to see that Bartley's the main target from corners, whether that be for a direct shot or for a flick on towards the back post. You kind of know that Bartley is the one that we're going to aim for first and then see what happens after that. So, Which is strange because in the last promotion season, Ajayi looked more of a threat than Bartley. And also in the Premier League as well. Yeah, but I think it might be heavily down to the fact that we're aiming a lot of them, a lot of the corners towards the six-yard box over the whole season. Forty-eight percent of our corners have been into the six-yard box. I think Bartley's probably our best aerial player just to win the ball, not necessarily to attack it and score a goal. But when you're aiming towards that six-yard box, you kind of just need to get that first contact, whether it just be a little flick on. So you almost need your best just aerial player to to win that first contact, which is, I'd say, is Bartley in our squad. I mean, just drilling down on that a little bit more, you say there that the expected goals is much, much higher than the actual goals that we have scored. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the data man and and I just try and interpret the, the information that you give us. But what that would say to me is that the delivery which has largely been from Mowat for much of the season, but the delivery isn't that bad, actually. But the problem is, a lot of the time, the players that are attacking the ball, and when you actually look over previous years, particularly under Pulis, but even even before that, under under Roy and Steve Clark as well, we really had players that aggressively attacked a football from set pieces. I'm thinking Craig Dawson. I'm thinking Gareth McCauley. I'm thinking Jonas Olsen. These guys really, really attacked the football. And I, I don't really see that from, from this group of players. Ajayi did a bit last season, but he doesn't seem to do it as much this season. The one who attack, who aggressively attacks a football in terms of heading it, other than Andy Carroll, who obviously it's hard to get any data on Andy Carroll because he's played so few games this season. But the one who seems to do it more than anybody else is Dara O'Shea. And obviously he, he got, he was, I think he was our top scorer actually after three games and then obviously got injured. It does seem a problem that the others, our threat from set pieces might be mitigated by the fact that Dara's not really been in the side. And he's the only one that in a really aggressive Craig Dawson, Gareth McCauley-esque fashion, Dara's the only one who really attacks the ball. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I think Craig Dawson's kind of the perfect example of a defender that attacks corners really well. And he's still doing it at West Ham now. And O'Shea's probably our most similar player in that respect. When he first broke into the first team, he scored a couple of corners in that in that championship season i remember one against millwall i think across the front post he made a move i think he did that maybe two or three times but yeah maybe we just don't have enough players that are going to attack a ball aerially like that because i mentioned bartley's kind of a he'll win the ball aerially but will he i just can't see him scoring a lot of corners by attacking the ball or just kind of flicking onto that back post where we've had a little bit of luck but yeah ultimately well, the other thing is, Pete, just to say that, if you if, if your tactic is a flick on at the near post, and you mentioned about Dara, the, the one against Millwall in particular, then I think, I think I could be wrong here, but I think the one against Bournemouth that he scored at the start of the season was similar, where he wins the, wins the first contact at the near post, and he goes for goal from those. But if your tactic is flicking it towards the back post, then you don't need one player that attacks the ball well. You need two because you need the guy at the near post to attack it well and get the flick. But then you need the guy who's either 
in the middle of the penalty area or coming in at the back post to attack it equally as aggressively and get that second contact in order to score. Yeah, and it kind of depends on what the the situation is off the first ball because I think think it was against Luton earlier in the season where Robinson scored at the back post from a corner and it was just kind of a bit of a mess in and around the keeper for the first contact and then it just dropped towards that back post and he, he almost peeled, it was almost standing on the back post and then peeled off a little bit, but his defender, his marker didn't go with him and he just had a tap in. So it's, I think it's a mix between having players steaming in and attacking that second ball and a little bit of clever movement and anticipation of where, where the ball's going to drop into the box and just for a, almost like a natural poacher type to, to get on the end of. Well, going to completely the other end of the field, as we, as we talk about poachers and, and knocking the ball in practically on the goal line, I'm going to just move us towards the other end of the field for, for the last part of today's pod. And we mentioned before about a big summer coming up and, and the areas of the team that, that we feel we might need to, to strengthen. One thing that is 99.99999% certain is that we will start next season with a new number one. And Pete, I know you've been having a, a little look ar- around the numbers on that. Yeah, there was a question that I had for the pod last week, I think. So this is kind of just addressing that. And goalkeepers are kind of probably the most difficult position to judge on pure data. Well, the data that I can get my hands on. You can look at expected goals conceded, which is similar to expected goals, but kind of after the shot. So how good the shot is and how likely the goalkeeper is to save it. And that gives an indication of how good a shot stopper that goalkeeper is, if you like. And Sam Johnston last season was one of the best shot stoppers in the Premier League on that metric. In this season, he's not been as good. But I'd say he's improved his sweeping up beyond the, the back five and, and his distribution a bit. In terms of the goalkeepers we've already got, we've got Button, obviously, and Alex Palmer, Josh Griffiths and Ted Can, who... I mean, I'd say Can's definitely too young to be making that step up yet, but he's meant to be a very promising prospect for for the future. Palmer's probably the the most likely to step in if we don't sign. Well, between Palmer and Button, if we don't sign a, a new goalkeeper, um, I think he's he's twenty five or twenty six now, so he's coming up to a decent age for a goalkeeper. Well, you also can... say as well, Pete, at that age, you either have to give him a chance or sell him, don't you? Yeah, and I think he's he'll be thinking the same thing really. He had that season on loan at, at Lincoln and he's he played one game at Luton this season, I think, but apart from that he's not played, so he's he's gonna be at the age where he's looking to be playing football every week, especially as a, a young, promising goalkeeper. Going back to that spell at Lincoln, if you look at his expected goals conceded, um that was one point one per game and he conceded one point zero nine, so he's performing slightly better than the average keeper in terms of his shot stopping, which is which is promising. Like I say, there's so many aspects that go into goalkeeping and it, it does a lot of the time depend on what style of goalkeeper the manager wants, whether you want a, a pure shot stopper or someone that's going to sweep up behind the back four or be part of build-up. And just to mention a couple of the best shot stoppers, is a, I think it's the easiest stat to look at in terms of goalkeepers. Some of the best in the, the championship this season have been Roos at Derby. I think he's been the best per game. Collins at Barnsley, which might be a bit unpopular with a lot of fans, considering we've signed a few Barnsley players or former Barnsley players already this season. But he's 25 and he runs out of contract in 2023. So if we're looking for a pure shot stopper at a young age, he's a potential option. But again, that would that would be kind of pushing Palmer out. So 
Well, not not just Palmer though, uh, Pete. Because if you, I think if you bring somebody in like that, that is going to be your number one for for quite a few years. Even if the the powers that be at the club don't look at Alex Palmer and see a West Bromwich Albion number one, I think a lot of the talk seems to be that people do look at Josh Griffiths that way. And I suppose the danger is if you bring somebody in that could run as number one for two contracts it kind of kills Josh Griffiths' chances to ever be Albion number one, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And which is kind of the case with Alex Palmer, that if you do give it to him, then, and he's turns out to be a good quality keeper that stays around for a while, then Griffiths is going to struggle to, to get into, into the squad. It might be in a bit of smart planning to, to finish Johnson's contract at the time as it, as it was that it would be about time to move Palmer in. I mean, I think it's poor planning that we're losing him on a free, but the initial planning might be might have been that Palmer might have been ready at this point, but I mean he's not played this season, so you, I don't know if you can throw him straight in or not. Was it an odd decision to not send him out on loan for you? Yeah, I think it was because to me it seems like the plan after we didn't get any offers or any suitable offers, it seems in the summer for Johnston was to keep him for the whole season. I I couldn't see us selling him in in January, so. We know we've got Johnston and we know we've got Button as backup. Could we not have then signed someone as a senior um, third-choice goalkeeper like we had? I think it was Andy Lonergan from, I think he was at Liverpool before, Alwyn, that he was kind of just the third choice, never expected to play, but there if we desperately needed him. I think we'd have been better with that and sending Palmer out to get some experience because, I mean, it seems like he was never going to get a chance this season with Alwyn. Well, that, that's what I don't get. Is that it's it's one thing if you if you want to keep Sam as your as your number one for the league because you think he gives him gives you the best chance of promotion, and undoubtedly that's true. Whatever some people might think about Sam and his head having gone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which, by the way, I don't buy into. I just think he's maybe had a little bit of a difficult period of the season, along with pretty much everybody else in the squad. But I. I think that he does give you the best chance of getting out of that out of this division. So I can understand from a short-term point of view playing Sam as the, the number one in the league. But if your long-term planning strategy, and, and everyone at the club has known pretty much since the start of the season that even if we got back up to the Premier League, Sam probably wouldn't have wouldn't have stopped because the talk of the, the other clubs that that may take him in the summer seemed to be more established Premier League clubs than than we will be. So he's likely to go in somewhere that isn't going to bounce between the two divisions, which if we went up with this squad, the chances are that Sam might, if he signed a three-year deal, might find himself back in the Championship in 12 months. And then what's the point in, in having signed with us? He obviously wants to play Premier League football for the next few years and who can really blame him? But if so if your plan is play Sam this year because that gives us a chance of getting up, and Alex Palmer is going to step into the breach next season, surely when it comes to the cup games and things like that, you put Alex Palmer in, don't you? You don't You don't put Button in because Button, for whatever he might be, he's not a long-term plan in any way, shape or form. So I can't help but wonder whether Alex Palmer will be here next season or whether we might start the season with Button as number one Griffiths is number two, and the plan being to ease Griffiths into the number one slot. What do you think? Even if we do that, we're still maybe disrupting the development of Josh Griffiths because ultimately you're going to develop most as a goalkeeper playing week in, week out. And I'd much, if the plan was to keep Button and 
move Palmer on, then I'd much rather see us sign a, a backup keeper like Button was this season and have him as the number two and send Griffiths out to a championship club if he's ready. And if he's not good enough to play week in, week out in the championship, then a League One club because that's where he's going to develop most. He's not going to develop as much sitting on the bench and watching David Button play week in, week out. So do you it, think there's a likelihood that we might keep Palmer literally to just be a number a number two to David Button and let Button sort of see out his career, Palmer see out his contract, and pretty much when 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 they're both done as Albion players in a season or two, that Griffiths, having had those couple of extra seasons out on loan, then steps in? Yeah, I'd say that's probably a better plan, to be honest, because it gives Griffiths that time to to develop a bit more and be be a bit more ready when he comes into the first team squad as the first team keeper because I think the other aspect as well I'm not actually sure how long they've got left on the contracts I wouldn't be surprised if Griffiths didn't have too much left on his contract and we see him leave leave on a free in a few years time to to a club that's a bit more established in the Premier League than well that is established in the Premier League unlike Albion so I think with the goalkeepers, there's a lot of planning that's got to go on and you've got to think about the individual development rather than just being in and around the club. Well, that's all we have time for today. But if there's something you want covered on the pod, such as the goalkeeper situation, which was a, a listener request, then please do reach out to us. We've got a pod account at Albion Analysis, or you can tweet myself at CJHall83, or you can tweet Pete, which is at AnalyticsWBA. We'll be back after the international break when the promotion bus may well be off to the scrapyard. But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.